Welcome everybody to the seventh recording of Product Market Fit Cafe. Today I'm joined by Ted from Glasswing, which I'll get into in a second. Um, quickly about myself and the show. This is a, this is a podcast dedicated to finding um, product market fit and interviewing the best founders, operators, and investors on how they've gotten there. Uh, quickly about myself as a co-host. Um, I'm a second time founder. My companies have raised over 85 million capital. I have one exit behind me, um, and I am currently a seed stage founder going through the struggles of product market fit. Um, my Pentacle founder from my first company, we started this podcast to help other founders um, get to product market fit quicker. And here I am today trying to surround myself with people who are much smarter than me and going through their stories to help uh, everybody ultimately get to product market fit quicker. And like I said, I'm joined by Ted from Glasswing. Ted, welcome. Hey, thanks, Luca, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. If you don't mind, just briefly introducing yourself, and then we'll hop into the questions. Sure, it'd be my pleasure. So um, I've done a bunch of startups over the last 20-some years, uh, all of them in the cybersecurity market in the early days as a co-founder who ran marketing, and later on as a co-founder who ran product. Um, I've been fortunate to work with some really great people. All of them have had exits that returned capital to their investors. Some okay, some very good. Um, most recent was Resilient, a company where we invented what became known as the security orchestration automation and response uh, product category within cyber. Um, that was a great exit uh, where IBM acquired the company. Um, and then after that was the SVP of product at Devo, a security analytics platform that's growing like crazy. Um, but now I'm doing two things. I'm getting my next c company going, although it's currently in stealth, but I'm also a venture partner at Glasswing Ventures, um, where I can both uh, do deals. Our two theses are cybersecurity as well as AI. Glasswing's been doing AI for some time, whereas like everybody I think is doing AI now. Um, but I'm also their operating partner for products. So one of the things that makes us unique as an early stage, like a pre-seed, seed stage investor, is we have a good number of operating partners that can really dig in with our portfolio. I am one of those as a product specialist. So if the team doesn't have somebody who really has done product before in the founding team, I'm very happy to get um, as deep into the, helping them as they can tolerate or, uh, <laughs> or desire. Love it. Great. Thanks for the intro. Um, why don't we dive into, maybe I'll just ask generally the concept about product market fit and then we can dive into any of the companies that you founded or been involved in, but how would you define product market fit? For listeners who've not listened to other episodes, you should, because there's a lot of really great um, answers to this question in the previous episodes that tackle it from different angles. And I really appreciated all of them. What I guess I would add to that conversation is repeatability. I think like that's that word isn't in the phrase, but maybe it should be because it's so key, I think, to being able to more confidently say that you're there. Because yes, it is those three words. It's product, it's market, it's fit. So that implies like a set of capability in an offering that's focused on a specific market that should be embodied in an ICP, an ideal customer profile. And then it has fit. Like all these things are kind of aligned to fit with one another. But repeatability, I think, is the test of that fit. Because what it would help you solve for are 
and this is a lot of startups I'm about to describe, where, yes, we have a product and we've sold it to a couple people. And so we and, you know, pretty high SP. So we feel like we have product market fit. But then you dig into it and it's like, well, actually, you sold a slightly different thing to each one of those customers. And so it's kind of a consulting thing in a way, right? Like that's a problem you see often. And then they premature scale and they then have to fix that problem the hard way. Um, that would be one like part of repeatability. Like, no, no, we're selling the same person, same thing to the same person every time. But then the other piece is that market, which implies go to market fit. And that gets to the like repeatability of the sales motion, whatever that may be. Um, ideally it's just like the product side, like the the go to market motion should be, we know exactly who we're going to go after because we have that very distinctly defined. Once we find them, we know exactly what we're going to do to them. And then, you know, we're very confident as what the output is going to be, or at least we're somewhat confident because we've done this enough with cohorts that look exactly this way. So that's why we feel like we're ready to scale. We can now add gas and accelerate our motion because we feel like we've found this repeat, this repeatable motion. Yeah, I love it. Um, and I, I, I feel like I say that after everybody who defines it, but it's always a different definition. And when reflecting actually on, on index, my current company, um, when we were looking for the first 10 customers, we said, we just need a repeatable CAC. If we can just keep getting a repeatable CAC, that's <laughs> the first sign of early yeah. product market fit. Um, di- diving into what we spoke about before the call about the, the, the I won't, I won't break it. Why don't we dig into that? I love how you explained that. <laughs> I don't want to ruin it. Yeah. yeah, sure. No, it's not a problem. Um, it gets to what I said before about that. Everything being aligned is when magic can happen. And I mean that in terms of like the different functions of the business. So as we were talking about before, product knows what they're going to build, the set of capability, and they've thought about it related to an ideal customer profile, an ICP. And now marketing is aligned along that, right? They know these are exactly the kinds of people that we want to get. And, and to be as specific about that as possible, and sales understands that too. Sales understands exactly the nature of the person they're going to receive for marketing and then what they're going to do to them once that happens. And so the, the phrase I used to describe this is like, it's, you know, blue jeans and green sweaters. That's all we want to see. Uh, marketing, you're going to deliver us leads that are just blue jeans and green sweaters and nothing else. And once you deliver them to sales, sales knows exactly what they're going to do to that cohort. And then you're just going to kind of rinse and repeat. Now, naturally, you do want to experiment on all of that. But I think a lot of times people aren't nearly crisp enough in that um, identification of the ICP, number one. And then even if they are pretty good on that, they don't necessarily force that alignment across all of the different functions of the business to make sure, A, that everybody understands that that's how you're going to do it, and B, everybody understands what their role is once, you know, Bob with his blue jeans and green sweater shows up in the top of the funnel. Let's get into a real example. Can you can you elaborate what your cybersecurity company did as a product? And how did you guys... Because, you know, I'm, I know a lot about SaaS and I feel like the most common products out there are, you know, SaaS or consumer small business products, but cybersecurity to me at least is, is a whole different world. So what did you yeah. guys do as a, as a product and how did you go about finding product market fit? So, um, yeah, I'll use Resilient, a, a recent startup as an example. We, um, well, we ended up, I mean, all startups are typically, at least in B2B, are usually making a market or disrupting a market. 
you're either defining a niche that hasn't really existed before, and then you're evangelizing and get people to buy, buy into that. And hopefully the analysts write about it and they give it a name and then like it gets a line item in the budget and then magic can start to happen. That's, that's one mode. Another mode is disrupting a market. You've got the better mousetrap. So you're going to take this thing to the people who have the legacy tech and your sales team is going to say something along the lines of, hey, try this for two weeks. I know you're about to, you're thinking about renewing that thing you've already got in a couple months, but trust me, you give this thing a whirl for a while, you're going to beg me to keep it because it's twice as fast and it costs half as much, right? But in Resilience case, we were making a new market. Our hypothesis was we have rocket science technology for preventing security incidents and then detecting security incidents. But when they happen, because it's inevitable, people are pulling out like spreadsheets and SharePoint. I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous. So our notion was to build a SaaS product to um, help streamline that process um, and make it much more efficient. And then, so that was really around people and process, but then we added automation. So instead of telling me to do, you know, these three steps as part of this broader response plan, can't you just do it, right? Like, I know I need to find out how widespread this malware is, but if you could integrate with my anti-malware solution and just do it automatically and pull the result back in, then it's quicker. I don't need as talented staff or I can have my talented staff kind of focused on other things. And so that's what led to the creation of what is now called the SOAR market, security orchestration, automation, and response. So anyway, that's just setting the table on our hypothesis. Given that, we were targeting... um, Organizations that at this point were starting to set up dedicated incident response teams, which is quite common now, but at that time it was somewhat unusual. It would be a part-time job. Like you had a broader cybersecurity role and when, you know, that inevitable bad thing happened, like everybody would, you know, buckle in and get ready to be working some long hours to get to the right side of the incident. But um, we saw this emerging as a dedicated profession and hence the need for a dedicated tool set. So that's what we look for. We would do LinkedIn searches, finding people who had incident response, like literally within their title. We were going after big organizations. So we started focusing on like the U.S. Fortune 500 and then later on, like the Global 2000. And that was, you know, the the beginnings of our kind of go-to-market motion is finding people who had that kind of a profile based on their title. Hiring was another way, like, Somebody recently gets that title and lo and behold, they got five job postings, two of which have filled like, you know, now you know that they're really investing and they could be a good candidate for us. How did, how did product, how did product development and kind of pivoting based on feedback look for you guys? (laughs) The whole thing was a pivot, if I'm honest, like the real story is that I was brought in to a company called CO3 Systems which was doing privacy breach, not a bad idea. Like five years later, that probably would have been a great business, but they were too early. Um, And so I was brought in to execute a pivot to this market I just described to you. Um, So that was pivot one. But, and thank God it worked. I mean, there's dark days, all pivots are tough. Um, And we were very fortunate to have some very patient investors that really believed in the pivot, the nature of what we were trying to do, but also believed in the team and our ability to execute against it. But the second sort of pivot was what I referred to earlier of like the people and process stuff and then adding in automation. Like that was nowhere in the original thesis. That was just us being good at really listening closely um, to our early customers and doing what, you know, good product people do, which is 
some stuff's good, some stuff's bad. All of it should be informed by like you, your view of the market, not just building whatever they ask you to. But when we got this idea of automation, adding that to the platform a couple times, we're like, oh, yeah, this is a very good idea indeed. And so um, it was quite a bit of work, I'm not going to lie, to add that set of capabilities. And we had a hell of a a bunch of tech debt that we already um, were under and, you know, not necessarily the ideal architecture. I mean, this was not the first, I guess, was a total pivot. This was more of a architecture and product pivot, the second one. Both are hard. Both can either one could kill a company. What is what does a pre product market fit cybersecurity startup look like? How many people? What are the positions? Is this like a massive engineering team? No, not at all. I would say um, these days you probably have a technical expert and you probably have a product person, and they probably come out of an established cybersecurity company, or they could be a customer, they could be a user, like somebody who's working in a SOC, a security operations center at a large company, and they've got this kind of flash of inspiration. Um, And yeah, they're going to build a small team um, around that core founding team and, uh, and kind of get on it. The the other model that we do see from time to time um, would be spin outs from research, not a ton, but these do happen. Um, and I like that model if you can find like the right the right team and the right market and so forth to chase because you can accelerate your R and D because you're building on the back of something they've probably been working on a while. Building the team in that model can be amazing. Um, we did that in one of my previous companies, and so poof, like full stack team of like twelve of some of the best people in the world because of that roots. So that can be a good way to do it. Um, another thing for cyber is you see you do get stuff out of uh, the DoD three letter agencies. You can get some really talented people and some really great ideas um, uh, through that way of finding kind of a founding team. Understood. And what did, so what did kind of that inflection point of product and growth look like where you guys said like, this is it, now it's time to, you know, pump in money, scale it? Yeah. In our case, it was... I'm just chuckling because it was not it was not great. These things are really hard. Um, you know, I spent a year or more just not being able to sleep because it was just that difficult. And you're just worried about running out of money and all these different things. But hallelujah, thank goodness, uh, we just started closing some really big names. I mean, the kinds of tech companies that are just household names, financial services companies that are household names. A couple of the tech companies, two of them were notorious for not buying stuff. Like they did everything themselves, but they bought our stuff. And it, in a way, was a bit like a, a, the flick of a light switch. I mean, it really was almost this three-month period where we went from, I don't know if this is going to make it to, oh my gosh, we have a tiger by the tail. And then, you know, raising money became not a problem and this, the business just started to scale um, very, very nicely. Um, so, and I would say, like, that's probably the, the the general script for making a market. Making a market's hard, you know. The upside is if you get it right, you know, it can be really um, transformational uh, growth. But the downside is there really aren't shortcuts. I mean, you, you do everything you can, but it just, especially in B2B, I mean, there's just a process you have to go through in the making of that market, as I said before, getting the analysts to buy in, getting them to write about it getting 
large enterprises decide, okay, we're going to start to kick the tires on this tech because it looks interesting, and then it gets established, and then it winds up as line items in a budget, and so on and so forth. You know, whereas that disruptive stuff, there's already a line item in the budget. Maybe you find a category that's a little stale. CrowdStrike would be a great example in cyber that did this years ago, where the endpoint business was really kind of aged, and they just built a better mousetrap. And even though there were some huge entities, you know, staking out on that territory, they were able to um, really aggressively disrupt that market, uncork some incredible growth and yield one of the most successful cyber IPOs of probably the last 10 years. And they continue to go on a tear. Ted, I want to touch on the on the three months you mentioned. So when I spoke to <laughs> Nicholas from uh, from Blinkist, which today, you know, is this profitable company there, you know, well, well worth over a billion, I think. But they, they took three years to get the product market fit, right? And so yeah. I feel like when you said three months, what, 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 is, what did you mean by that? Because that just seems like a pretty quick, that seems oh. like a relatively short period. Yeah, I mean, really that was three months of we believed we had product market fit based on what we talked about before. Like we had closed a couple deals they were all the same. We were selling to the same kind of customer, the same kind of tech, didn't have like weird one-offs. And, um, you know, we scaled up our go-to-market and we just got results very, very quickly. I, I do think that, you know, in all cases, actually, let's get this out of the way, right? Like uh, failure's an orphan, success, like <laughs> it's, everybody's involved, right? Everybody's a winner. Um and so what I would say here is I th- think we did do – we suffered. That's a fact. So that's something. And we worked really hard and I think really smart. But this is a long way of saying tailwinds emerged, right, which was there were some really large breaches that sort of shined another light on the need for this kind of tech. And that definitely helped. That was absolutely an accelerant. This is a nice thing about cyber, I have to be honest with you. Like it's never a bad business. The worst of times – Cyber still keeps going because sure. it's just too dangerous to cut that back to nothing. Um, and But when things are great, it can be really, really phenomenal. So this was a case where uh, we had the right tech at the right time, but cyber did what it does, which is breaches kept happening. And so it drove a higher level of maybe enthusiasm and uptake on the technology than you kind of might otherwise see for just your classic B2B thing that's focused more on strict ROI, you know? Yeah. What, what what would you say are the biggest mistakes you guys you guys have made looking for product market fit and post? Wow, in top three in, in this particular case, I think what came back to haunt us was tech debt and the architecture shift. We had competitors emerge that you know had the the fortune of a clean sheet of paper and us having already identified this market opportunity. And so naturally, they had some really slick products. Um, And if I had it to do over again, I would have made some different decisions with the rest of the team um, about the architecture and then the SATA capabilities that we built that that would have, um, you know, minimized the impact those competitors had on us and would have probably added a little bit to our outcome and then our our success after that. but anyway, that's that specific example we've been talking about. I would say more generally the problem that I see over and over and over again, both in my operating capacity and here as an investor at Glasswing, is just the classic premature scale. And I have to be honest here, right? There's a reason people keep doing this over and over again. It's not just that 
you know, we're gluttons for punishment or, you know, people are just dumb or whatever. It's that there's these forces that are in conflict with one another. And it really gets to just, you know, the investors typically wanting to see that growth because they're worried and they're thinking about the next round and the company's ability to, like, get that done. Um, and the founders wanting to listen carefully to those investors, you know, and wanting to achieve the objectives that are being set forth and not pushing back enough or thinking critically enough about that advice and realizing that, yeah, I know our numbers look okay, but in truth, like we sold a little bit different thing to each of these customers. I'm not sure we're ready. Or, you know, um, maybe the capability is right, but we haven't really nailed the repeatability on that go-to-market motion because these five customers that we sold to, they're all a little bit different and we don't reach all of them the exact same way. But, you know, like I said, you go along with it because there's pressure, because you want to do try to do the right thing based on the guidance that you're getting, because you know that if you hit those numbers, you live to fight another day. And then, yeah, you hire that um, CRO or somebody functionally in that capacity. They hire a couple people. You outsource or you get marketing going, and that just takes you down a very dangerous path if you're not careful. Going into the last couple of questions, um, going into product market fit, who is your biggest competitor? Oh, um, well, I mean, if we just use yeah. if we just bit. use resilient as an example, there, we were making a market, so there really wasn't one. It was just doing things the way they had been doing, which in this case, I mean, it sounds ridiculous at this point, but it was. It was spreadsheets, it was PDF binders that they're pulling off the shelf in a crisis. Um, and so I guess maybe what was the enemy? The enemy was just the, the making the market motion of getting people to you know understand what this thing is and why they should care and what the capabilities were and the benefits of those capabilities would drive. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's that's kind of what I was I was um, I couldn't I mean I know nothing about cybersecurity to tell you the truth so yeah. I find it super interesting but yeah I mean it's always some sort of legacy process or or, or company ultimately. Um, and so I think that's an important point for founders to acknowledge since we're on it, Luca, excuse me, Sure, sure. Um, is I think a lot of times first first time founders, when they are making a market like we've been discussing, they kind of go into the VC conversation and they're like, we have no competition. Don't do that. (laughs) Any founder listening to this, don't ever do that. You are begging for a whooping when you go into like your first, you know, pitch or especially if you go to like a partner pitch where they may not know your, um, market or whatever, but they'd love to they'd love to play the stump the founder game. There's always competition. And, and as we've been talking about, in this case, it's either like doing nothing or just doing what we have been doing, because they're doing something probably to address this problem. Maybe it's dumb, maybe it's not really effective, but they are doing something. And to get them to change, to get them to cough up budget is not trivial. Um, and when you're making a market, there isn't a line item. So you're basically saying you're going to get them to steal money from something else to do this thing that isn't really defined, that analysts aren't really talking about. And that's that's a tall order. That is not easy to pull off. Yeah, I think it's also a good thing to have competition. It means that there is that it's actually working in the market. It's not just, you know, because if there isn't yeah. competition, it's kind of like, why isn't there competition? Totally. You know. Um, yeah, and I think it's and, good there you know. to talk about the, um, the, uh, the people in kind of tangential markets. So maybe they're not something that you would consider a direct competitor as you sit there as a founder at the, you know, at any moment in time, but they're people who could be a strategic outcome for you could extend it and become a direct competitor. 
Um, you should be considering all of those. And if, like I said, even if you don't think you have direct competition, if you've got a slide that talks about it in some detail and says, well, there's doing nothing or whatever they're doing today. And there's these people in these tangential markets and here's how we're different and why we think we're complementary. That's just a much stronger pitch that shows that you've really done your homework um, in thinking about, well, product market fit for sure, but everything that goes around that from a product perspective that, and that ultimately creates a business. Yeah. And then growing, so my, my last question is, is just understanding scaling that product market fit in cybersecurity. What were some of the most high in-demand features and products that helped you solidify your position in the market but also helped you scale without, yeah. yeah. Integrations were key for us given the nature of what we were doing is, you know, we were taking this, we're going to give you a bunch of best practices and case management and all that stuff and it's going to really bring some clarity and some efficiency to something that's really very manual and broken. But then we, as I said, added automation. So it became a matter of figuring out there's, there's freaking thousands of security products out there. It's legendary. Like you may not know anything about cybersecurity, but you may you probably know that one point there's literally like 5,000 private security companies out there. It's insane. Um, so obviously that's too much. So you have to work with your customers really clear, carefully to figure out, hey, you're a startup, you can't integrate with everything. So what integrations are you going to do? And why are you going to do them? And there's a lot behind that, both in terms of capability, market size, um, potential strategic synergy that can get created with that third party product that you are integrating with. Um, And you really should be thinking very carefully about that stuff to make the most of the bets that you're making. And then I would very much encourage you as you start to scale, since this motion that we're talking about is no means unique to cyber. There's like tons of B2B businesses that are like this. Um, you know, adding third parties, there are a bunch of great third parties that specialize in these integrations. And so if you have the capital, that's a great way to accelerate your ability. You know, why restrict yourself to the five integrations your integrations team can do every quarter if you can hire two outsourcers and then triple that? Um, and now you get a bit of a factory going. Um, that's a wonderful thing indeed. Um, and then the final thing I would say here is what I alluded to before in terms of the synergies. This is literally what got my company resilient bought, and I've seen it happen to many other founders that I know. Um, it's not just throwing it over the wall and you know doing a little bit of work in sales to sort of get the joint customers of you and in our case IBM or whoever it might be to sort of buy and use the product. It's like you as the founder, you got to engage on all fronts. Like you should be talking to that partnership team regularly, sharing with them the updates to your sales pipeline, deals that you've closed that are common customers. Do the same thing with whoever's in BD that's tracking that stuff that might either be just be looking for more integrations within their portfolio um, or they have some role to play in the M&A process at their organization using both of those cohorts to get to like the product leaders that you're integrating with, like literally the people who own the line item and the budget, the number for that, getting them informed and keeping that as like a regular cadence where you're bringing them along on your adventure. It's like the synergy I talked about earlier inside your business. You want to foster the same thing in your distribution channels and amongst your partners with the steady drip of information and communication to sort of create this groundswell of, wow, this thing is really moving and shaking. And to be honest, where you ultimately want to get that is to fear, right? (laughs) Where they're like, oh my God, these guys are in Walmart. They're in Microsoft. They're in this other customer. They're in this other account. Like if we don't seal them up and one of our competitors does, we're at risk of losing all these major accounts because they now have a toehold in them. Love it. 
Quick, quick fire. Um, reading material and books that you would recommend. Oh yeah. Ah, <laughs> this is a regular staple that I love. So I came prepared <laughs> in three categories. So we're talking about MVP, but product for early stage, it's just so darn important. I have three, some of these have been mentioned before, but they're so good. I'm going to repeat anyway. Uh, the four steps to the epiphany. Um, great, like basically like a Bible to building a startup. It's, it's date. It's been around for a long time, but it's just as relevant now as it was then. It's as Um, old as the Bible. (laughs) Yeah, kind of. Yeah. For, for the startups. Yeah. Um, inspired Marty Kagan's book is an absolute classic must read. And what I love as a, um, like that's more like the vision and strategy and get you pumped up for doing like agile and, um, customer discovery based product delivery. And then the Lean Product Playbook is a great like details. So Inspired is strategy and Lean Product Playbook is execution let down in the weeds. So there's three for product. Um, culture, five dysfunctions of a team. I, I've read it so many times. I've used it multiple times. It never goes out of style. It's relevant at almost any company. And um, even if you don't think you need it, you probably do. And to get the team to read it and maybe even do a workshop around this at like an offsite when you have two days or something, I think that's time very, very, very well spent. And then finally on marketing, Play Bigger. I both love and hate this book. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm recommending it. So obviously I love it because I think there's some important things to say, but I just find like the hyperbole and the chest thumping a little hard to bear sometimes. So I just, <laughs> if you're like me, you just have to like ignore that and realize that there's some signal in the noise that's worth uh listening to i love play bigger by the way that's a really really good book yeah um yeah <laughs> have you read amst actually as well i forget the author the former ceo of oh no all right this, i was just gonna ask you it's good yeah i want to add to my list it reminds me of a uh, play bigger actually that kind of i think they even recommend it um yep but yeah um, what else what's on your list that usually that people uh, haven't mentioned or that's worth re-mentioning Worth re-mentioning is definitely definitely four steps to the epiphany. Um, I mentioned that today to somebody, yesterday to somebody. I, re- I think that's great. I'm rereading parts of it now. Um, yeah. I haven't read Inspired. I have not read the Lean Product Playbook, even, although I've read a lot of Lean books in general. Five Dysfunctions I read, Playbook I read. Um, I'm just trying to think. I don't know. I think Amp It Up is great, especially okay. Amp It Up just pushes you and your team to just amp it up. Um, I, I like yeah. the mentality of that. Um, but I can't, I can't really think of anything at the moment. <laughs> you got me off, uh, All right. off guard. No, that's fine. I think that's like, uh, three to six months worth of reading, even for like a diehard. So yeah, that's true. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I think, right. you know, what, re- what really makes blank's book stand the test of time is it's just such like a workbook format. So yeah. it's not, so it's not like, like ivory tower academic. It's very practical. Yeah, and his writing style is very funny and ironic and yeah, sarcastic yeah, yeah. in a sense. Yeah, I feel like it's a book. It reminds me of like Meditations from Marcus Aurelius, right? So it's a book you turn to any page and it just grabs you, you know. And so I'm That's reading right true. now about company building, which is the fourth step to the epiphany. So it's like, all right, how do you not scale this? What are we forgetting, right? So, um, but yeah. I think I think what left what, out to yeah. you there that was that really meant something to you in terms of where your company's at now. So we've just been cycling through through uh, the second step, which is customer validation, and um, and uh, is it and the third step being um, customer validation, com- uh, customer yeah customer building right. So uh, steps uh, two and three, and we're now finally ready to just press the gas pedal. Like all right, now let's 
let's scale it. You know what I mean? So for now, it's working. Oh, things are things <laughs> things are going I'm in the right direction. I'm really yeah, I appreciate it. So, um, but yeah, with us, it's been it's been about a it's been about a year, I'd say, um, from 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 launching to understanding. Like, all right, now we're ready to press the gas pedal. And why um, did you feel you were there? It, it was uh, like you said in, at the okay. beginning, repeatability. Hmm. Repeatability became very clear, and also financial repeatability in terms of CAC and different costs, including COGS. Um, yeah. So yeah, repeatability across the whole business. So nice. That's yeah. probably worth a podcast. <laughs> yeah, actually, I can sit down. I should. That's a really good point. I should sit down with my team and just have like a big discussion about it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. If I can help, let me know. Maybe we can turn the tables, and I'll interview you. You can tell me about it. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> not a bad idea. I guess the thing we didn't talk we we alluded to that strikes me as really important is the tension between customer discovery and your own product vision, right? Like those things really have to be in balance. And what I mean by that is, you know, customers are really good at articulating to you a pain. Um, They're not necessarily great at like the way to achieve that pain. And like any human though, they'll share with you what they think. And to me, I think that the trick for any product leader, but especially like a founder in the early stage is kind of staying true to your your North Star and your vision within reason. Like sometimes you do need to pivot, but if we're not talking about that situation, um, and and you know, interpret interpreting the, what you're hearing from those customers and those prospects, and then applying it to your vision, because that to me is the hard part of product, but also the magical part of product, where um, you know you you fulfill that need in a way that's far beyond anything that the customer even envisioned. Um, I got goosebumps just thinking about it. Like if you can pull that off, then you're really onto something. That's a really good point. I think there's a massive discrepancy between the customer's pain point and the solution. Like they're not responsible for the solution. You're responsible for the solution, right? Yeah. Um, and I saw that a lot at just, you know, even if the customer is an internal customer, like, oh, but I want the button to be this way. It's like, I, that's not necessarily the best solution. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good, good point. Um, and there's often, tricks you can do to get yeah. there, you know, I mean the classic, um, well, as inspired talks about, but it's nothing new. He didn't make any, Marty didn't make any of this stuff up, but that, you know, that, that team, that's a full stack team. It's not just front end, back end, maybe some QA, uh, but it's a, it's somebody from a, like a UX perspective and they all are forced to go on the journey. That's I think key from prototyping on through to like the initial delivery of the capability, like no shortcuts, no not coming to the meetings or whatever. Like they all have to go along on that journey. That is one way to help achieve kind of this goal because by bringing all of those perspectives, right, the PM's perspective, the front end perspective, the back end perspective, the design perspective, then you're going to have a greater odds of getting from that customer articulation of a pain point and some ham-handed way to fulfill it to that magical way to fulfill it that is goes even far beyond the original scope of the customer's problem. Yeah, we, we found great success once the team was fully focused on solving one problem. And that's part of product market fit is when we've when we've done really well. The second we started, oh, we're there, we'll just move on to other things. That's when mm. things got sloppy. Yeah. <laughs> so Did you guys use there. like a full team like I just defined it there for, for getting there? Yeah, I, I I mean, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Um, we've always been very lean, you know, like 
you know, three, four yeah. people basically max uh, running yeah. towards it. So but probably with, no dedicated UX. Actually, yes. So our, our biggest lever to growth has been the website. And um, both my, my Penta and Index co-founder is actually responsible for the website. That's all he does all day, every day. Yeah. So, yeah, we can tell you, you know, you name a pixel on a website. We'll tell you how much people spend time there. <laughs> like, that's it's huge. that optimized. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. So, all right. Um, any final thoughts? <laughs> I think you've heard enough of me for one day. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Um, I appreciate appreciate the I appreciate the 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 call and um, and thanks a lot. Yeah, it was super fun, Luca. I really appreciate your invitation to join you. Um, I'm happy to help in any way I can going forward, and I wish you great success with your business. Yeah, thanks a lot. Okay, cheers. Let's pretend we stop recording. Okay. Um, <laughs> 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 and, and, and it never is we always do record but let's pretend we did how do you think we did oh i, I had a lot of fun yeah <laughs> but what does that mean what do you think you've done all these no i think i think we did well i'm just i always start thinking you know it's always hard to 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 judge when you're in the when you're in the sauce right um so it's like do you think we missed anything do you think we didn't brush i'm sure anything? we did that i'll think of but you don't want to go too long you want them hungry for more so yeah fair <laughs> enough yeah, yeah i found what i found the most interesting was yeah the cybersecurity aspect of it, because it's an industry I know little about. Um, it, it does, like now that you're mentioning it, obviously, you know, overlaps with enterprise sales and B2B sales. Um, but I, I just found that the, the the synergy aspect very interesting, the partnership kind of how do you make the flywheel go faster. Yeah. That for me was super interesting. Oh, cool. Um, Good. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that hasn't come up on the other podcasts that I can think of. So that's that's additive, which is nice. Yeah. This was definitely a very different perspective, um, yeah. which I appreciated. But Good. But yeah, sounds good. I don't I don't have any <laughs> any other thoughts. I appreciate you taking the time.